0: All right, uh, let's begin by opening our Bibles to uh, Revelation 14, uh, if you have it with you. And we're going to continue our series in the book of Revelation. In 1738, a young Church of England clergyman wrote, The faith I want is a sure trust and confidence in God that through the merits of Christ, my sins are forgiven and I'm reconciled to the favor of God. Here it is again, the faith I want is a sure confidence that I'm reconciled to the favor of God. What would it be like to live in a time when everywhere you look worldwide, you can only see the disfavor of God? I mean, surely in a time like that, it would seem that many people would long for the assurance that they can indeed be reconciled to the favor of God. Yet Many Christians today have never quite understood the fact that during the coming tribulation, there will actually be many who come to trust in the work of Christ and who will gain that assurance that they are in the favor of God in spite of his obvious disfavor to the nations of the world. You see, there's a common view among some Christians that the tribulation is only a time of God's unprecedented judgment. And to them, it's nearly inconceivable that during such a period of time, characterized by that kind of divine disfavor, there would nevertheless be salvation that is offered to mankind. Now, this view uh, comes really from several statements in 2 Thessalonians 2. Uh, which make uh, people wonder if there really is going to be such a thing as what we call tribulation saints or people who are saved in those seven years. one of those statements is in verse seven of that chapter, where scripture says that he who restrains will be taken out of the way. Uh, He who restrains is probably referring to the Holy Spirit. And so people say that if the Holy Spirit is removed from the world at that time, how could you have people coming to Christ? In addition to that, there are some really uh, frightening statements in verses 10 to 12, which talk about God sending a strong delusion upon people so that they will believe what is called the lie. Uh, The lie is pointing back to the deception of the Antichrist that he is God. Well, God himself will send people a strong delusion so that they will believe that lie. You say, why will God do that? Well, it says he'll do that so that those who did not receive the love of the truth will be condemned. So the viewpoint tends to be, well, if they rejected the light that God gave them in this life, and now they are judicially deluded by God himself into believing that the Antichrist is God, then how could you have people coming to Christ during the tribulation? Uh, I remember an old pastor of mine uh, from a church Uh, in the States, taking this position, and he would talk about this strong delusion, and the fact that if people heard the gospel, and had an opportunity to be saved before the tribulation, then after the the rapture, uh, they're going to believe the lie, they'll be deluded, they will never be saved during the tribulation. It's quite a compelling argument to accept Christ today, lest the rapture happen, and it's too late for you to come to Christ. Well, All through chapters 6 to 14, we have almost been taking for granted the presence of saints in the tribulation. So this morning, I want to address this subject and deal with the objection that there cannot possibly be any saints during that period of time. And then I want to conclude with verses 12 to 13 in chapter 14, which follow the angelic announcements that are given at that time. We looked at those announcements last time. And if you look in your Bible uh, or look on the screen, uh, verse 12 then says, here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. John writes, then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, write, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. We're going to come back to those verses uh, later on. But for now, let's just take up this whole issue of tribulation saints. I want to begin by laying out a series of passages that actually justify our taking for granted that these people will exist during these last seven years of human history as we know it. I want to give you a comprehensive list of all the passages that indicate this, And the first one is in the first chapter of judgment in the book, which is chapter six. So turn there with me if you have your Bibles or on your digital devices. Now, this chapter, uh, you may remember, introduces us to the breaking of the seal judgments. When the fifth seal is broken open, in verse nine, John says, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And notice it's because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they held, which means that these are believing people. In fact, verse 11 goes on to say that they are given white robes. Now somebody asks, well, how do we know that these are not all the martyrs who died for Christ throughout all of church history? How do we know that these are only tribulation saints who have given their lives? Well, When we covered that passage some time ago, we saw that John is seeing souls under the altar. In other words, these individuals are not existing in their resurrected, glorified bodies. And we know from 1 Thessalonians 4 and 1 Corinthians 15, that when the Lord comes for the bride of Christ, the dead in Christ will be raised. Well, what's going to be raised? Their bodies. So all the souls of past saints in church history are currently with the Lord. But when Christ comes again, he will bring those souls with him and they will be reunited with their resurrection bodies. So if John only sees souls under the altar, then these cannot be past saints, but they can be tribulation saints who died on earth after the church has been raptured. In addition to that, we discovered God's promise in Revelation 3.10 that the church will be kept from the hour of testing that will come upon the whole world. An hour of testing is clearly referring to the tribulation. And I want to remind you that this does not merely teach that God will keep his people through that testing. That's how it's often interpreted. But it doesn't say that. It says they will be kept out of this period of time. The language there is very specific. It really doesn't give any possibility for the church to be present during that hour. So on the basis of that text and other parallel passages... We believe that the Lord will return to catch us away before the opening of the tribulation. And yet during that period of time, John sees these souls not yet reunited with their bodies. So this is a text that offers the evidence of people who live during the tribulation and who die for Christ during the tribulation. Now, let's look at verse 11. Here is a second passage. Let me get that up on my screen here. There it is. Um, Then a white robe was given to each of them, to each of these people. And it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren, who would be killed as they were, was completed. In other words, there will be brethren killed in the further months of the tribulation. And there you have a second passage testifying to the presence of saints in the tribulation. Now, chapter 7, verse 3, you've got these four angels who are permitted to harm the earth and the sea. Although they're prohibited from uh, initiating those events until it says we have sealed the servants of God on their foreheads. You know the language, it's the servants of our God who are sealed. Uh, during that tribulation period. And then in verses four to eight, uh, you remember that we see the 144,000 Jewish believers. So there you have a third passage testifying to the presence of saints in the tribulation. Look at verse nine. After these things, I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could number. So you could count the 144,000, but you couldn't count these. Of all nations, tribes, peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the lamb clothed with white robes with palm branches in their hands and in verse 10 oops sorry go back there it is verse 10 you remember the singing of salvation so who are these people verse 14 the elder says to john well these are the ones who come out of and literally it says the tribulation the great one and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So who are these people in this multitude from all the nations? Well, they've come out of the great tribulation. And there you have a fourth passage testifying to the presence of saints in the tribulation. So you at a fifth passage. Chapter 11, you've got these two unique individuals. God refers to them there in verse 3 as my two witnesses. They will live and bear testimony to God and to Christ for three and a half years. So there you have a fifth passage. Chapter 12, verse 17, when Satan is cast down to earth, he's, uh, remember, he's denied all access into heaven, and that's going to happen at the midpoint in the tribulation, and it says in verse 17, he was enraged with the woman, who's a nation of Israel, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring, and look at how they describe there, who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. So this is referring to people during the second half of the tribulation and there's a sixth passage. Look at chapter 13, verse seven. When the Antichrist finally engages in open war and persecution, in verse seven it says, it was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And there you have a seventh passage. The verse 10, he who leads into captivity uh, shall go into captivity. He who kills with the sword must be killed with the sword. Here is the patience and the faith of the saints. And when we looked at that passage before, we discovered that it's teaching that God not only determines when people die, but he also determines how they will die. And there will be saints whom God has predetermined will go into captivity. And some of them will die by the sword. And then he says, this is the endurance, the perseverance. This is the Uh, The word in in our translation is patience. Here is the patience and the faith of the saints that they will endure those things. So that's an eighth passage. Now, I want to show you two more that are not in this book. Uh, They're in Matthew 24 and the Olivet Discourse. Uh, And again, uh, all we're doing at the moment is just trying to gather evidence for the presence of saints in the tribulation. So in Matthew 24, 7. And my PowerPoint seems to be freezing up here. Let's go back. All right. Matthew 24, 7. Uh, the Lord refers to nation rising against nation, kingdom against kingdom. Uh, there's will be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in various places. And then in verse 9, they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Verse 12. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. Verse 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations. And then the end will come. And the context here is really referring to the first half of the tribulation. During that time, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world. And we saw last time in Revelation 14, that God is so intent on this happening, he's going to actually employ angelic messengers. And one of them is going to proclaim an everlasting gospel uh, that's going to be universal in its outreach. So there's a ninth passage for you. And then look at the following verses. Uh, After that, verse 15, you've got the abomination of desolation uh, spoken by Daniel, which is right at the midpoint in the tribulation. Uh, This, of course, is when the Antichrist positions himself in the temple. He declares himself to be God. And now verse 21, for then there will be great tribulation. That's the second half. Such as has not been seen since the beginning of the world until this time. No, nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh, no physical life would be saved. In other words, uh, if all of this continued without God stopping it, all life would be snuffed out. Uh, However, keep reading, but for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. It's for the sake of the elect who are on the earth at that time. Who are those people? Well, among others, we know that the Lord will preserve a remnant in the nation of Israel, those who will see Christ at his second coming, at the end of the tribulation. You remember the prophet Zechariah says they will look on him whom they have pierced, and then a fountain of cleansing will be open for them. These are the elect in the nation of Israel. And that then makes 10 passages for us. Now, if you include uh, the one that we started with today, verses 12 and 13, we actually have 11. So now there should be no question about whether or not God will save people during the tribulation. Will he or won't he? Absolutely. But that being the case, how do you explain the objections? Uh, Let's deal with them uh, quickly on our way back to Revelation 14. And I want to start with this issue that the tribulation is primarily a period of judgment. Objection number one, people say the tribulation is primarily a period of judgment. Well, obviously, it's characterized by judgment. Uh, In fact, the word tribulation means pressure. But as we've noted in the past, that pressure is also designed to squeeze out many people for God. I mean, there's going to be many under that weight who are looking for relief, and they will turn to God. Like, stop and think about this for a moment. What does scripture mean when it talks about a great multitude that no one can number? How many do you think that is? Now, it certainly doesn't mean an infinite amount, but it does mean that it cannot be computed by a human being, right? It's beyond human comprehension. You can't just sit there and number the multitude that's going to be there. It's not possible. That's what Revelation 7 says. So what it, what is it talking about then when it says that they come from every nation and all the tribes and all the language groups? Well, let's just compare that for a moment. How long did Noah preach before the first time when God judged the whole earth? How long was that and how many people were saved? Only eight people. I would call that a period primarily characterized by judgment. Uh, Think about the first century. How many people do you suppose were truly converted to Christ between 80-30 and the end of the first century? Well, uh, in 70 or 75 years, we know from the new Testament and what early church historians have recorded that there were thousands and thousands of them, but there's no evidence that it was millions. What about the reformation or the Puritan era? What about the 18th century English revivalists or the great periods of mass evangelism that occurred at the end of the 19th and early 20th centuries? How many people do you suppose came to Christ in those times? For example, in the Welsh revival of 1904, they say that about 100,000 people were affected in Wales. Okay, but okay, how about, a, how about a great number that nobody can count? I mean, there must be millions and millions of people who will come to Christ during that period of time. And that doesn't even include, you know, the infants or the unborn uh, who were taken immediately into God's presence. You know, it's hard to imagine any period of history of nearly any length that will be more characterized by the success of the gospel than the tribulation period. I mean, I don't want to go through that time, but it would be wonderful to go through and see it happen. And perhaps we will see it from heaven's viewpoint. But secondly, what about this issue of the Holy spirit being removed? Uh, look at second Thessalonians two, and I want to just notice very carefully the language that's in that chapter. Verse 7 says, uh, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And because of the language, he who now restrains, this entity is often known as the restrainer. So who or what is the restrainer who will be taken out of the way? Well, here's what we know biblically. We know that God uses human government to reward those who do good and punish those who do evil. That's Romans 13. So is the restrainer human government? Well, keep in mind that during the last half of the tribulation, you have quite a controlling government. You have an individual who has the world under his control to a degree that is never experienced before. So that's probably not the restrainer taken out of the way. We also know that we, as Christians, are the salt of the earth. We have a preservative influence, and we are going to be taken away by the Lord. So in that sense, the restraint that you have from Christian people will be removed. Just think of a city like this. Think of the influence of Christians in this community. For all the difficulties we have as a church that's often divided and fighting among itself, you're still living in a community that is preserved to some degree, by the influence of the church. But then there's also the Holy Spirit, which is God's means for restricting lawlessness in the earth. For example, uh, you know, this was the case before the first judgment on the whole earth until God said in the days of Noah, my spirit will not always strive with man. I mean, my spirit's not always going to do that. So I think that, that the best indication of the he in verse seven is the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit indwells the church, and the church will be removed, and so the Holy Spirit's restraints to a great degree will evidently be removed, which is why the Oliver Discourse says that lawlessness will abound. But I do want to point out that this does not say that the Holy Spirit himself will be removed from the world. In fact, one of the attributes of the Holy Spirit is his omnipresence, right? He's everywhere. So, during the tribulation, do you think that there's going to be this one little spot in the universe on earth where he is not present? That isn't what the verse is saying. It's saying that he will be taken out of the way in the sense that his restraint on the earth will be removed in significant ways. But remember that nobody is ever truly regenerated without the ministry of the Holy Spirit. This was true in the Old Testament. This is true in the New Testament. Uh, You remember that Jesus expected Nicodemus to understand this when he said to him, you must be born again. You must be born of water and the spirit. Why don't you know this? He said to Nicodemus. So Old Testament saints were regenerated by the Holy Spirit of God. New Testament saints are regenerated by the spirit of God and tribulation saints will be regenerated by the spirit of God. He is not entirely removed from the world. He can't be. Well, the other text that we need to address Uh, is verses 10 to 12, and especially verse 10, where it says that these people uh, whom God will delude so that they believe the lie are people who did not receive the love of the truth in order to be saved. On the basis of that verse, many people have concluded that anybody who rejects Christ before the tribulation will not be able to accept him Afterwards, because they're going to be deluded throughout the tribulation. So let's talk about that. Let's just note the fact that there is a sense in which everybody rejects the love of the truth, right? I mean, Romans 1:18 says that all men suppress the truth. In fact, that passage also says that idolatry is the evidence of pagan people suppressing the truth. So if everybody suppresses the truth and nobody by nature receives the love of the truth, then who is this talking about that God is going to delude because they didn't receive the love of the truth? Especially when we just went through 11 passages showing us that there's going to be multitudes of people saved during the tribulation. I mean, every one of those people is someone who didn't receive the love of the truth before they were saved. In other words, there's clearly some kind of distinction that'll be made between some people who reject the truth and other people who reject the truth. Now, where does God draw that line? Well, we really don't know exactly. But we do know that to whom much is given, much is required. And that's the basis on which people believe this refers to anyone who heard the gospel before the tribulation. But just think about this. Who on the earth today is most likely to fit the description as those who did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved? Among all the people of the world, who would most likely fit that description? Are we talking about Hindus? Is it some remote tribe on some island in the Philippines? Is it Muslims? Is it North Koreans? What about affluent Westerners? where we have a church virtually on every corner? How about Christ rejecting scripture, ignoring citizens of somewhere like the UK? You know, it's difficult to think of anyone on earth of whom it could be more accurately said that they stand in the greatest danger of experiencing this judicial blinding delusion if they live into the tribulation period than people in Western nations. But having said that, does this passage say that if someone has ever one time heard the gospel and then Jesus returned, that they could never be saved again? Does this passage say that? No, it does not. Uh, That would be overreaching the interpretation. That would be stating beyond what the passage specifies. But regardless, there will be a vast number of people whom God will know those people who have crossed the point of no return, and he will judicially delude them so that they will be damned. They will be condemned and they will blindly accept the lie of the Antichrist. Now that makes this a very fearful passage, doesn't it? Certainly doesn't militate against anyone coming to Christ during the tribulation, in spite of the fact that all men suppress the truth And so in that sense, they could fit the description in the passage. But it does send out a warning that there is a point of no return when someone repeatedly rejects the truth of God. Say, well, who's that? I'm not quite sure, but, but think, for example, of those in the pastorate who are not really regenerated. Think of those teaching in seminaries who reject the truth and teach a lie. Think of those who attend a church and heard the gospel dozens of times, but continued to reject it. What is the point of no return? I don't know, but I wouldn't want to be someone who's toying with the destiny of his eternal soul, would you? But regardless of that, I think that this passage does not preclude all of those people coming to Christ in the tribulation, as we've seen in Revelation. Now, having said that, I want to take you back to chapter 14 verses 12 and 13, and I want to finish our message today by looking at what those verses say about those saints. They're called saints in verse 12, where we are told about their life, but in verse 13 we are told about their death. So let's start then with the life of these saints. In general, God characterizes their life with one word. These are people who persevere. This is the perseverance of or the patience of the saints. That is the word for endurance. It's the word that's used by James when he says, my brethren rejoice when you experience the various trials of your faith. Why rejoice? He says, because the trying of your faith works patience. And that isn't talking about keeping your temper. That is the word for endurance. It works endurance. And then it says, let endurance have its perfect work so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. You know, I used to read that verse and wonder what there was about endurance that brings a person to perfection where he lacks nothing. I mean, why is that virtue singled out as the key virtue to have? Then one day it occurred to me that endurance really is the acid test of the value of anything. When you and I, for example, uh, purchase an expensive product, we typically ask about the length of the warranty because we assume that the length of time that the manufacturer is prepared to guarantee the product is probably a good prediction of its life. When you uh, buy tires, for example, uh, you want to know how many kilometers you can expect to get out of them. Uh, You want to know how long the charge in that battery is going to last. Uh, You know, the people at uh, Choice, the um, product testing company, they they test laptop computers by freezing them and baking them and dropping them and pouring coffee into the keyboard. They want to know how long is this thing going to last under pressure? Well, my brethren, count it all joy when you're subjected to these trials of every kind, because that works endurance and endurance is the measure of your character. Well, if there's ever a period of time when the saints will be subjected to trials and pressures of every kind and find that it works in them an incredible endurance, it's going to be the tribulation. Now, we're concerned about the endurance of products, but we all know that it's relationships that really count. Uh, Your teenage daughter has a terrible car accident and wrecks the family car. It's totaled and she's in tears, but she's all right. And dad says to her, it's okay it's just a car. Thank God you're safe. Now, he may be at least a little concerned about the car, but he doesn't mention that, because we all know that the endurance of relationships is the most important thing. Now, of course, there's a human relationship that God says should endure until death parts. That's the relationship between the husband and wife. God values the endurance of a marriage. But we are told that by comparison, Our love for Christ is supposed to so overshadow the love in a marriage that the human relationship is almost loveless compared to the endurance of the love that we should have for Jesus Christ. Well, during the tribulation, people will have an almost unprecedented opportunity to display that love to God. And he will value their endurance in that relationship, which is why he picks it out as the one thing that characterizes the life of these people. They persevere and God is noting it. Now, what do they endure in? Well, two things are specifically mentioned in verse 12 again. It's the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. Those are the two things they hold on to unshakably. They will not release their grip on their obedience to the commandments of God and to their faith in Jesus. They're holding on, you might say, with two hands to these things. Now, I want to look at them for a moment, but I want to first call your attention to the fact that the text isn't just telling us what they do, but it's actually telling us who they are in terms of what they do. Right? The text reads this way in verse 12. Here is the perseverance, let me go back here, here is the perseverance of the saints, and literally, the ones who are keeping the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Do you see that? Grammatically, the phrase, the ones who are keeping, is renaming the saints. In other words, it's defining the saints. Somebody says, well, who are the saints? Well, they're the ones who are keeping the commandments of God and keeping their faith in Jesus. Those are the saints. It's renaming and defining those people in that way. So do we understand who saints are? Now I want to apply this to us in contemporary Christianity. Have we accepted the Bible's definition of a saint? Or have we fallen for the deception that keeping the commandments of God was really an Old Testament emphasis, an emphasis that has been largely set aside since the redemptive work of Christ, and now the New Testament emphasis is simply to believe. Now, of course, there are commandments in the New Testament, but but obedience is minimized in the New Testament and maximized in the Old Testament. So today, you just need to trust Christ and don't get too bogged down in obeying all those outdated commands in the Bible. Let me tell you, that is a deception. The Apostle Paul gives a catalog of sins in Ephesians 4, and they're all violations of the moral law of God, a law that is based on his own character that never changes. Then he says to the Christians to whom he is writing, let no one deceive you, because it's these things that bring the wrath of God upon people. Now, why does he have to write that to Christians? Because there is a possibility that someone will deceive them About their being liberated in Christ to the point where obedience to the moral law of God is minimized. It doesn't really matter. And that just isn't true. In the Old Testament, to obey was better than sacrifice. In the tribulation period, saints are those who are keeping the commandments of God. Well, is it any different in the New Testament church era uh, or church history era? I mean, is this the one time? In all of church history, where God places very little value on obedience. Unfortunately, that is the impression that is often given to Christianity today. Messages today are all about love and grace and acceptance. And I know the plans I have for you, plans for good and not evil. And, you know, let me just say all of that is very true. All of that is very important. But have you noticed that so little is said about obedience? Well, do you know what Jesus taught about this? He taught that there will be many people who will stand before him and they will profess what is theologically orthodox. And yet he will say to them, depart from me, all you who work iniquity. I mean, many will say to him in that day, Lord, Lord, they will profess him to be the Lord of their life. But not everyone who says that to him will enter the kingdom of heaven. But as Jesus said, only those who do the will of my father. In other words, only those who obey. And then he gave a story to reinforce what he was saying. He said, you know, it's like two guys building houses and one guy builds this house on a rock and the other guy builds it on sand. He said, well, what's the difference between those two guys? Well, in the New King James, there's one word of difference. The guy who builds his house on the rock is the one who hears the sayings of Jesus and does them. The guy who builds his house on the sand is the one who hears the sayings of Jesus and does not do them. It's only one word of difference, and it's the difference between obedience and rebellion. God has always valued obedience. Look at 1 John 2.1. John says that he is writing the things in his book to us so that you may not sin, I mean, that's God's expectation. Do you realize that what is said in this book, including the part that says, if you confess your sins, He is faithful and just to forgive them. Do you realize that all of that is written so that you won't sin? However, in the second part of the verse, and if anyone does sin, if you sin, well, there's a provision for that. We have an advocate with the father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for us only, but also for the whole world. Verse three. Now, by this, we know that we know him. How do we know? Next line. If we keep his commandments. That's how you know. Someone says, yeah, I'd like to be absolutely sure that I'm a Christian. Good. Do you keep God's commandments? Because one way you know. What about somebody who says, well, you know, I'm I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm saved, but I can't say I really try to keep his commandments. I mean, some of them, you know, they're just a little bit too inconvenient for me and my lifestyle. don't like them. Well, look at the next verse. He who says I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. A liar about what? About what he just professed that he knows Jesus. He lies in his profession. The truth is not in an individual like that. I'm not minimizing passages that talk about the love of God, but please understand that this is not an all-accepting, embracing love that demands you do nothing in return. No, you must do what the old hymn says, that there's no, no other way to be happy in Jesus, but to trust and want, to trust and obey. True Christian people have a heart to be governed by God. I mean, it's given to them supernaturally. They have a new heart. And the Bible says that God's commandments are not grievous once you come to Christ. What's grievous is when you disobey. And of course you disobey. All Christians disobey. That's why we have to confess our sins. That's why we need a constant cleansing and an advocate before the Father. But a true Christian grieves over that. It's a big deal for him. Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn. Do you know anything about mourning over your sin? If you know nothing about that, you are not a believer. But blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. It is critical that we accept the whole word of God. Nobody is saved by obedience. But I can tell you that there is no salvation for a person who does not obey. This is what James talks about when he teaches that your faith must work. And if it doesn't, then your faith is no better than that of a demon. And you may tremble even under a message like this, but that doesn't mean you're saved. The evidence, the acid test will be if you keep God's commandments. The heart of a believer has a heart of obedience to God, and it's his joy to have his steps directed by him. He's reading his Bible every day. He's looking for directions from God because he loves to be governed by God. I mean, his security is in the blood of Jesus, yes, but God directs and empowers him by the spirit of God to be a faithful and obedient believer. Now, don't you think that God will require obedience of people in the tribulation when they have a tremendous pressure on them to be disobedient? Of course, God's gonna require them to obey. So how much more so for those of us who are being carried to heaven on flowery beds of ease? What excuse do we have for not being obedient people when the pressure is so light? We need to consider the emphasis of obedience in scripture. And until we do, we're going to find ourselves increasingly displeasing to God. I think it's a sad fact that many professing Christians only keep the commands that they are inclined to keep. If they're disinclined, well, they just don't keep it. In fact, they're glad to find any justification for disobeying. But instead of looking for a way out, we need to have a kind of heart that says, you know, thank God I've been given the liberty in Christ to be able to obey. Now, these people will be characterized by keeping the commandments of God, and then they'll be characterized by keeping their faith of Jesus. Now, that little expression faith of Jesus could mean one of two things. It could mean either their subjective trust in Christ himself as the object of their faith. That's possible. That's how some translations have put it. Or it could mean the Christian faith, the whole body of truth. Like Jude says, it's the faith once delivered to the saints. So the faith of Jesus is referring to the fact that they have put their trust in Jesus himself, Subjectively, or that Jesus is the content of the body of objective truth, and they're holding on to that body of truth. It's one of those two things. Which one do you think it is? Do you think it's them holding on to their confidence in Jesus, they're trusting in Jesus, or is it saying that they hold fast to the whole Christian faith, the whole Christian dogma about Jesus, the truth about Jesus? Well, the simple answer to that is. Yes, it's both and. You can't separate those two things. I mean, what is someone doing who keeps the faith that is about Jesus? If you do that, then you have faith in Jesus. You are trusting in him. These are inseparable. Now, what will it take in that day to really hold fast to the Christian faith and have a persevering and personal trust in Christ? Do you think you could do that? in the fire. I don't think I could do that in the fire. In fact, you know, let me tell you what happens to me when when my hand touches a hot burner on the stove. I don't even have to think about it. My hand involuntarily springs back. And yet, it's evident from the scriptures that God gives grace in the moment to endure in the fire and in the flood and under torture and in some of the most extreme conditions. And all the credit for that is going to go to Jesus. Paul told Timothy, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Uh, It was William Gurnall who said, the strength of every earthly captain lies in his troops. But in the Christian army, the strength of the troops lies in the captain. That's because it'll be the power of Jesus that enables these people to persevere in this way. And so all of the glory goes to him as they keep their faith. Now, verse 13 moves on to encourage these people in life by telling them about the nature of their death. So let's turn to that in closing. In Hebrews, we are told that for all of our unsaved earthly life, we are basically kept in bondage by the devil because we fear this thing called death. But once you become a Christian, death is no longer frightening. And this will especially be the case for these people. Look at their death. In general, it's characterized by a word, just like their life was characterized by the word endurance. Their death will be characterized by being blessed. It's characterized by blessedness. The Presbyterian Albert Barnes uh, said something on this text in his commentary that's worth noting. He said, you know, it's a great thing to be able to say of the dead that they are blessed. Why is that? Well, because there's so much about death that is sad. Is that we dread death because it cuts us off from everything that is dear to us, and it robs us of our hopes, and the grave is cold and cheerless. So in light of all that, well, it must be a great thing to be able to say, you know what? It's actually blessedness to die in the Lord. Why is it so blessed for them? Keep reading. Yes, says the spirit, for these two reasons, that they may rest from their labors. Now, that's true for all saints. If you stand by the bedside of an old saint who really gave himself to the Lord right through to the end, they're lying there, they're ready to be finished with their labors. But that'll be especially true for these people, because their labors aren't like our labors their labors are going to be to hide one another at the risk of their own lives it'll be their labor to visit one another in prison knowing that this will identify them and now they're going to be imprisoned it'll be their labor to relieve one another of extreme sufferings to take on its suffering for themselves i mean these are the people who are going to visit and give a cup of cold water in jesus name and open their mouths for him, but it's gonna come at the cost of great indignity and torture. It's gonna be for them what it was for our soldiers who were posted at the front in World War II and they're shell-shocked and they're wounded and their limbs are torn off and they're sick inside from what they've seen. And now they're finally taken home. These will be blessed people in their rest. And just look at the contrast between that and what's said about others in verse 11. These saints rest in their labor, but those who give in and accept the mark of the beast have no rest, day or night, forever. And that's the great choice, right? Trouble now and rest forever, or no pressure from the beast now, but no rest forever after. And that, of course, is the same kind of choice that you're confronted with right now in this life. You and I are confronted with that. Now, our temptation is always to reach out and grasp for ourselves, whatever appears to satisfy all of our earthly desires. The Bible's teaching is that those who are patient and willing to endure even deprivation, those are the people laying up their treasure in heaven, where no moth devours, where no rust corrupts, and it's theirs forever. You know, it always takes faith to overcome the world of sight. And one of these days, thank God, our faith will be sight, just like it will be for these people in the tribulation. But then the last thing, and their works follow them. Literally, their works follow with them. They will accompany them. And what marvelous works they will be. These are works at which heaven's angels will marvel for all eternity, the kinds of works that are found in Hebrews 11. Think of the awful things that people will suffer for the name of Christ, but their works will go right into glory with them. They are blessed in reward for those works. Now, it's easy, I think, to die for Christ, but it strikes me that it's a very hard thing to endure for Christ. And I find, as perhaps you do, that I disappoint myself nearly every day in my endurance. And I I just long for the grace from God to live the kind of life that I know and I see in the scriptures and not to do so under this awful weight of feeling obligated, but out of the, the gratitude that I have for being liberated by Christ. I want to do so as a demonstration of my love for him. I really want to say, as the Lord did, that my food is to do his will. What a life. What a what a blessedness that is, and what a preparation. If that was the desire of all our hearts, then that would be to die content in the Lord. Let's pray together. Our Father, we Read these verses, and we are amazed at what is to come, and we thank you for these saints in the future, sometime, or perhaps some who are on the earth right now. We thank you for the revelation of their faithfulness. Now, Father, in this life, may we be faithful. May we do all that you have commanded us to do. May we love to obey it, because that is where our joy is found. And may we know true satisfaction in following your will. We give you thanks. Uh, for the word that reveals these things to us and for the Holy Spirit that guides us and for the love that we bear to you for all that you have done for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.